Chapter 4, Part 2 of Across the Reef, The Marine Assault of Tarawa, by Joseph H. Alexander. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. D-Day at Basio, 20 November, 1943. When Shoup's LCVP was stopped by the reef, he transferred to a passing LVT. His party included Lieutenant Colonel Evans F. Carlson, already a media legend for his earlier exploits at Macon and Guadalcanal, now serving as an observer, and Lieutenant Colonel Presley M. Rixey, commanding 1st Battalion, 10th Marines, Shoup's Artillery Detachment. The LVT made three attempts to land, each time the enemy fire was too intense. On the third try, the vehicle was hit and disabled by plunging fire. Shoup sustained a painful shell fragment wound in his leg, but led his small party out of the stricken vehicle and into the dubious shelter of the pier. From this position, standing waist-deep in water, surrounded by thousands of dead fish and dozens of floating bodies, Shoup manned his radio, trying desperately to get organized combat units ashore to sway the balance. For a while, Shoup had hopes that the new Sherman tanks would serve to break the gridlock. The combat debut of the Marine medium tanks, however, was inauspicious on D-Day. The tankers were valorous, but the 2nd Marine Division had no concept of how to employ tanks against fortified positions. When four Shermans reached Red Beach 3 late in the morning on D-Day, Major Crow simply waved them forward with orders to knock out all enemy positions encountered. The tank crews, buttoned up under fire, were virtually blind. Without accompanying infantry, they were lost piecemeal, some knocked out by Japanese 75mm guns, others damaged by American dive bombers. Six Shermans tried to land on Red Beach 1, each preceded by a dismounted guide to warn of underwater shell craters. The guides were shot down every few minutes by Japanese marksmen, each time another volunteer would step forward to continue the movement. Combat engineers had blown a hole in the seawall for the tanks to pass inland, but the way was now blocked with dead and wounded Marines. Rather than run over his fellow Marines, the commander reversed his column and proceeded around the bird's beak towards a second opening blasted in the seawall. Operating in the turbid waters now without guides, four tanks foundered in shell holes in the detour. Inland from the beach, one of the surviving Shermans engaged a plucky Japanese light tank. The Marine tank demolished its smaller opponent, but not before the doomed Japanese crew released one final 37mm round a phenomenal shot, right down the barrel of the Sherman. By day's end, only two of the 14 Shermans were still operational, Colorado on Red 3 and China Gal on Red 1 Green Beach. Maintenance crews worked through the night to retrieve a third tank, Cecilia, on Green Beach for Major Ryan. Attempts to get light tanks into the battle fared no better. Japanese gunners sank all four LCMs laden with light tanks before the boats even reached the reef. Shoup also had reports that the tank battalion commander, Lieutenant Colonel Alexander B. Swincheski, had been killed while waiting ashore. Swincheski, badly wounded, survived by crawling atop a pile of dead bodies to keep from drowning until he was finally discovered on D plus one. Shoup's message to the flagship at 1045 reflected his frustrations. Stiff resistance, need half-tracks, our tanks no good. But the regimental weapons company half-tracks, Mounting 75mm guns, fared no better getting ashore than did any other combat unit that bloody morning. 
One was sunk in its LCM by long-range artillery fire before it reached the reef. A second ran the entire gauntlet but became stuck in the loose sand at the water's edge. The situation was becoming critical. Amid the chaos along the exposed beachhead, individual examples of courage and initiative inspired the scattered remnants. Staff Sergeant William Bordelin, a combat engineer attached to LT-22, provided the first and most dramatic example on D-Day morning. When a Japanese shell disabled his LVT and killed most of the occupants en route to the beach, Bordelin rallied the survivors and led them ashore on Red Beach 2. Pausing only to prepare explosive charges, Bordelin personally knocked out two Japanese positions which had been firing on the assault waves. Attacking a third emplacement, he was hit by machine gun fire, but declined medical assistance and continued the attack. Bordelin then dashed back into the water to rescue a wounded Marine calling for help. As intense fire opened up from yet another nearby enemy stronghold, the staff sergeant prepared one last demolition package and charged the position frontally. Bordelin's luck ran out. He was shot and killed, later to become the first of four men of the 2nd Marine Division to be awarded the Medal of Honor. In another incident, Sergeant Roy W. Johnson attacked a Japanese tank single-handedly, scrambling to the turret, dropping a grenade inside, then sitting on the hatch until the detonation. Johnson survived this incident, but he was killed in subsequent fighting on Basio, one of 217 Marine Corps sergeants to be killed or wounded in the 76-hour battle. On Red Beach 3, a captain, shot through both arms and legs, sent a message to Major Crow apologizing for letting you down. Major Ryan recalled a wounded sergeant I had never seen before limping up to ask me where he was needed most. PFC Moore, wounded and disarmed from his experiences trying to drive my Dolores over the seawall, carried fresh ammunition up to machine gun crews the rest of the day until having to be evacuated to one of the transports. Other brave individuals retrieved a pair of 37mm anti-tank guns from a sunken landing craft, manhandled them several hundred yards ashore under nightmarish enemy fire, and hustled them across the beach to the seawall. The timing was critical. Two Japanese tanks were approaching the beachhead. The marine guns were too low to fire over the wall. Lift them over came the cry from a hundred throats. Lift them over! Willing hands hoisted the 900-pound guns atop the wall. The gunners coolly loaded, aimed, and fired, knocking out one tank at close range, chasing off the other. There were hoarse cheers. Time correspondent Robert Sherrod was no stranger to combat, but the landing on D-Day at Basio was one of the most unnerving experiences in his life. Sherrod accompanied Marines from the fourth wave of LT-22 attempting to wade ashore on Red Beach 2. In his words, no sooner had we hit the water than the Japanese machine guns really opened up on us. It was painfully slow, wading in such deep water. And we had 700 yards to walk slowly into that machine gun fire, looming into larger targets as we rose onto higher ground. I was scared, as I had never been scared before. Those who were not hit would always remember how the machine gun bullets hissed into the water, inches to the right, inches to the left. Colonel Shoup, moving slowly towards the beach along the pier, ordered Major Rudd's LT-38 to land on Red Beach 3, east of the pier. By this time in the morning, there were no organized LVT units left to help transport the reserve battalion ashore. 
Shoop ordered Rudd to approach as closely as he could by landing boats, then weighed the remaining distance. Rudd received his assault orders from Shoop at 11.03. For the next six hours, the two officers were never more than a mile apart, yet neither could communicate with the other. Rudd divided his landing team into seven waves, but once the boats approached the reef, the distinctions blurred. Japanese anti-boat guns zeroed in on the landing craft with frightful accuracy, often hitting just as the bow ramp dropped. Survivors reported the distinctive clang as a shell impacted a split second before the explosion. It happened a dozen times, recalled Staff Sergeant Hatch, watching from the beach. The boat blown completely out of the water and smashed, and bodies all over the place. Robert Sherrod, reporting from a different vantage point, I watched a Jap shell hit directly on a landing craft that was bringing many Marines ashore. The explosion was terrific, and parts of the boat flew in all directions. Some Navy coxswains, seeing the slaughter just ahead, stopped their boat seaward of the reef and ordered the troops off. The Marines, many loaded with radios or wire or extra ammunition, sank immediately in the deep water, most drowned. The reward for those troops whose boats made it intact to the reef was hardly less sanguinary. A 600-yard wade through withering crossfire, heavier by far than that endured by the first assault waves at H-hour. The slaughter among the first wave of companies K and L was terrible. 70% fell attempting to reach the beach. Seeing this, Shoup and his party waved frantically to groups of Marines in the following waves to seek protection of the pier. A great number did this, but so many officers and non-commissioned officers had been hit that the stragglers were shattered and disorganized. The pier itself was a dubious shelter, receiving intermittent machine gun and sniper fire from both sides. Shoup himself was struck in nine places, including a spent bullet which came close to penetrating his bull neck. His runner crouching beside him was drilled between the eyes by a Japanese sniper. Captain Carl W. Hoffman, commanding 3-8's Weapons Company, had no better luck getting ashore than the infantry companies ahead. My landing craft had a direct hit from a Japanese mortar. We lost six or eight people right there. Hoffman's Marines veered toward the pier, then worked their way ashore. Major Rudd, frustrated at being unable to contact Shoop, radioed his regimental commander, Colonel Hall. Third wave landed on Beach Red 3 were practically wiped out. Fourth wave landed, but only a few men got ashore. Hall, himself in a small boat near the line of departure, was unable to respond. Brigadier General Leo D. Dutch Hermley, assistant division commander, interceded with the message, Stay where you are or retreat out of gun range. This added to the confusion. As a result, Rudd himself did not reach the pier until mid-afternoon. It was 1730 before he could lead the remnants of his men ashore. Some did not straggle in until the following day. Shoup dispatched what was left of LT-38 in support of Crows in Battle 2-8. Others were used to help plug the gap between 2-8 and the combined troops of 2-2 and 1-2. Shoop finally reached Basho at noon and established a command post 50 yards in from the pier along the blind side of a large Japanese bunker, still occupied. The colonel posted guards to keep the enemy from launching any unwelcome sorties, but the approaches to the site itself were as exposed as any other place on the flat island. 
At least two dozen messengers were shot while bearing dispatches to and from Shoup. Sherrod crawled up to the grim-faced colonel, who admitted, We're in a tight spot. We've got to have more men. Sherrod looked out at the exposed waters on both sides of the pier. Already he could count 50 disabled LVTs, tanks, and boats. The prospects did not look good. The first order of business upon Shoup's reaching dry ground was to seek updated reports from the landing team commanders. If anything, tactical communications were worse at noon than they had been during the morning. Shoup still had no contact with any troops ashore on Red Beach 1, and now he could no longer raise General Smith on Maryland. A dire message came from LT-22. We need help. Situation bad. Later, a messenger arrived from that unit with this report. All communications out except runners. CO killed. No word from E Company. Shoup found Lieutenant Colonel Jordan, ordered him to keep command of 2-2, and sought to reinforce him with elements from 1-2 and 3-8. Shoup gave Jordan an hour to organize and rearm his assorted detachments, then ordered him to attack inland to the airstrip and expand the beachhead. Shoup then directed Evans Carlson to hitch a ride out to the Maryland and give General Smith and Admiral Hill a personal report of the situation ashore. Shoup's strength of character was beginning to show. You tell the general and the admiral, he ordered Carlson, that we are going to stick and fight it out. Carlson departed immediately, but such were the hazards and confusions between the beach and the line of departure that he did not reach the flagship until 1800. Matters of critical resupply then captured Shoup's attention. Beyond the pier he could see nearly a hundred small craft circling aimlessly, these, he knew, carried assorted supplies from the transports and cargo ships, unloading as rapidly as they could in compliance with Admiral Nimitz's stricture to get the hell in, then get the hell out. The indiscriminate unloading was hindering prosecution of the fight ashore. Shoup had no idea which boat held which supplies. He sent word to the primary control officer to send only the most critical supplies to the pierhead. Ammunition, water, blood plasma, stretchers, LVT fuel, more radios. Shoup then conferred with Lieutenant Colonel Rixey. While naval gunfire support since the landing had been magnificent, it was time for the Marines to bring their own artillery ashore. The original plan to land the 1st Battalion 10th Marines on Red 1 was no longer practical. Shoup and Rixey agreed to try a landing on the left flank of Red 2, close to the pier. Rixie's guns were 75mm pack howitzers, boated in LCVPs. The expeditionary guns could be broken down for manhandling. Rixie, having seen from close at hand what happened when LT-38 tried to wade ashore from the reef, went after the last remaining LVTs. There were enough operational vehicles for just two sections of batteries A and B. In the confusion of transfer line operations, Three sections of Battery C followed the LVT shoreward in their open boats. Luck was with the artillerymen. The LVTs landed their guns intact by late afternoon. When the trailing boats hung up on the reef, the intrepid marines humped the heavy components through the bullet-swept waters to the pier and eventually ashore at twilight. There would be close-in fire support available at daybreak. 
Julian Smith knew little of these events, and he continued striving to piece together the tactical situation ashore. From observation reports from staff officers aloft in the float planes, he concluded that the situation in the early afternoon was desperate. Although elements of five infantry battalions were ashore, their toehold was at best precarious. As Smith later recalled, the gap between Red 1 and Red 2 had not been closed, and the left flank on Red 3 was by no means secure. Smith assumed that Shoup was still alive and functioning, but he could ill afford to gamble. For the next several hours, the commanding general did his best to influence the action ashore from the flagship. Smith's first step was the most critical. At 1331, he sent a radio message to General Holland Smith reporting situation in doubt and requesting release of the 6th Marines to division control. In the meantime, having ordered his last remaining landing team, Hayes' 1-8, to the line of departure, Smith began reconstituting an emergency division reserve comprised of bits and pieces of the artillery, engineer, and service troop units. General Smith at 1343 ordered General Hermely to proceed to the end of the pier, assess the situation, and report back. Hermely and his small staff promptly debarked from Monrovia, APA 31, and headed towards the Smoking Island, but the trip took four hours. In the meantime, General Smith intercepted a 1458 message from Major Shettle, still afloat seaward of the reef, CP located on back of Red Beach 1, situation as before, have lost contact with assault elements. Smith answered in no uncertain terms, direct you land at any cost, regain control of your battalion, and continue the attack. Shuttle complied, reaching the beach around sunset. It would be well into the next day before he could work his way west and consolidate his scattered remnants. At 1525, Julian Smith received Holland Smith's authorization to take control of the 6th Marines. This was good news. Smith now had four battalion landing teams, including 1-8, available. The question then became where to feed them into the fight without getting them chewed to pieces like Red's experience in trying to land 3-8. At this point, Julian Smith's communications failed him again. At 1740, he received a faint message that Hermely had finally reached the pier and was under fire. Ten minutes later, Smith ordered Hermely to take command of all forces ashore. To his subsequent chagrin, Hermely never received this word, nor did Smith know his message failed to get through. Hermely stayed at the pier sending runners to Shoop, who unceremoniously told him to get the hell out from under that pier and trying with partial success to unscrew the two-way movement of casualties out to sea and supplies to shore. Throughout the long day, Colonel Hall and his regimental staff had languished in their LCVPs adjacent to Hayes' LT-18 at the line of departure, cramped, wet, hungry, tired, and a large number seasick. In late afternoon, Smith abruptly ordered Hall to land his remaining units on a new beach on the northeast tip of the island at 1745 and work west towards Shoup's ragged lines. This was a tremendous risk. Smith's overriding concern that evening was a Japanese counterattack from the eastern tail of the island against his left flank, Crow and Rudd. Once he had been given the six Marines, Smith admitted he was willing to sacrifice a battalion landing team, 
if it meant saving the landing force from being overrun during darkness. Fortunately, as it turned out, Hall never received this message from Smith. Later in the afternoon, a float plane reported to Smith that a unit was crossing the line of departure and heading for the left flank of Red Beach 2. Smith and Edson assumed it was Hall and Hayes going in on the wrong beach. The fog of war. The movement reported was the beginning of Rixie's artillerymen moving ashore. The 8th Marine spent the night in its boats, waiting for orders. Smith did not discover this fact until early the next morning. On Basio, Shoup was pleased to receive at 1415 an unexpected report from Major Ryan that several hundred Marines and a pair of tanks had penetrated 500 yards beyond Red Beach 1 on the western end of the island. This was by far the most successful progress of the day, and the news was doubly welcome because Shoup, fearing the worst, had assumed Shettle's companies and the other strays who had veered in that direction had been wiped out. Shoup, however, was unable to convey the news to Smith. Ryan's composite troops had indeed been successful on the western end. Learning quickly how best to operate with the medium tanks, the Marines carved out a substantial beachhead, overrunning many Japanese turrets and pillboxes. But aside from the tanks, Ryan's men had nothing but infantry weapons. Critically, they had no flamethrowers or demolitions. Ryan had learned from earlier experience in the Solomons that positions reduced only with grenades could come alive again. By late afternoon, he decided to pull back his thin lines and consolidate. I was convinced that without flamethrowers or explosives to clean them out, we had to pull back to a perimeter that could be defended against counterattack by Japanese troops still hidden in the bunkers. The fundamental choice faced by most other Marines on Basho that day was whether to stay put along the beach or crawl over the seawall and carry the fight inland. For much of the day, the fire coming across the top of those coconut logs was so intense, it seemed, a man could lift his hand and get it shot off. Late on D-Day, there were many too demoralized to advance. When Major Rathvin McSee Tompkins, bearing messages from General Hermely to Colonel Shoup, first arrived on Red Beach 2 at the foot of the pier at dusk on D-Day, he was appalled at the sight of so many stragglers. Tompkins wondered why the Japanese didn't use mortars on the first night. People were lying on the beach so thick you couldn't walk. Conditions were congested on Red Beach 1 as well, but there was a difference. Major Crow was everywhere, as cool as icebox lettuce. There were no stragglers. Crow constantly fed small groups of Marines into the lines to reinforce his precarious hold on the left flank. Captain Hoffman of 3-8 was not displeased to find his unit suddenly integrated within Crow's 2-8. And Crow certainly needed help as darkness began to fall. There we were, Hoffman recalled, toes in the water, casualties everywhere, dead and wounded all around us, but finally a few Marines started inching forward, a yard here, a yard there. It was enough. Hoffman was soon able to see well enough to call in naval gunfire support 50 yards ahead. His Marines dug in for the night. West of Crow's lines and just inland from Shoup's command post, Captain William T. Bray's Company B-1-2 settled in for the expected counterattacks. The company had been scattered in Kyle's bloody landing at midday. Bray reported to Kyle that he had men from 12 to 14 different units in his company, 
including several sailors who swam ashore from sinking boats. The men were well armed and no longer strangers to each other, and Kyle was reassured. Altogether, some 5,000 Marines had stormed the beaches of Basio on D-Day. 1,500 of these were dead, wounded, or missing by nightfall. The survivors held less than a quarter of a square mile of sand and coral. Shoup later described the location of his beachhead lines the night of D-Day as a stock market graph. His Marines went to ground in the best fighting positions they could secure, whether in shell holes inland or along the splintered seawall. Despite the crazy quilt defensive positions and scrambled units, the Marines' fire discipline was superb. The troops seemed to share a certain grim confidence. They had faced the worst in getting ashore. They were quietly ready for any sudden bonsai charges in the dark. Offshore, the level of confidence diminished. General Julian Smith on Maryland was gravely concerned. This was the crisis of the battle, he recalled. Three-fourths of the island was in the enemy's hands, and even allowing for his losses, he should have had as many troops left as we had ashore. A concerted Japanese counterattack, Smith believed, would have driven most of his forces into the sea. Smith and Hill reported up the chain of command to Turner, Spruance, and Nimitz. Issue remains in doubt. Spruance's staff began drafting plans for emergency evacuation of the landing force. The expected Japanese counterattack did not materialize. The principal dividend of all the bombardment turned out to be the destruction of Admiral Shibasaki's wire communications. The Japanese commander could not muster his men to take the offensive. A few individuals infiltrated through the marine lines to swim out to disabled tanks and LVTs in the lagoon, where they waited for the morning. Otherwise, all was quiet. The main struggle throughout the night of D-Day was the attempt by Shoup and Hermely to advise Julian Smith of the best place to land the reserves on D-plus-1. Smith was amazed to learn at 0200 that Hall and Hayes were in fact not ashore, but still afloat at the line of departure, awaiting orders. Again, he ordered Combat Team 8 minus to land on the eastern tip of the island, this time at 0900 on D plus 1. Hermely finally caught a boat to one of the destroyers in the lagoon to relay Shoup's request to the commanding general to land reinforcements on Red Beach 2. Smith altered Hall's orders accordingly, but he ordered Hermely back to the flagship, miffed at his assistant for not getting ashore and taking command. But Hermely had done Smith a good service in relaying the advice from Shoup, as much as the 8th Marines were going to bleed in the morning's assault, a landing on the eastern end of the island would have been an unmitigated catastrophe. Reconnaissance after the battle discovered those beaches to be the most intensely mined on the island. End of chapter 4 Read by Aaron Bennett